0: Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to 2020. I'm so thrilled that you've tuned in to my first episode of the decade with special guest Samson Williams. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to share a few updates with you all. First, I'm proud to say that over the past year and a half, I've published 53 Health Unchained episodes with over 11,000 listens and downloads, tweeted over 500 tweets and thousands of messages on the Health Unchained community Telegram group. Second, Large healthcare organizations are starting to inquire about the opportunities that decentralized ledger technology can offer to help them deal with ever-growing trust issues in healthcare. This can be seen by the number of consortium-based pilot projects coming together to share their data and to make their operations more efficient. This decade will be an important time for unimaginable collaboration and new business models around data. Third, I'd like to thank all my followers, supporters, listeners, and guests for being part of the revolutionary change that the healthcare industry needs to be more effective in helping people be their best selves. Good health is a cross between physical and emotional well-being. As companies try to help people live better, they are collecting massive amounts of data. Data security and privacy is starting to become a hot topic, and I do believe that decentralized ledger technology or blockchain will set the foundation for allowing us to be our own custodians of our own data. And lastly, if you enjoy Health Chain and want to show your support, please rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast player. This will help others find the show and help me know that you find value in these conversations. Also, don't hesitate to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or via email. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. This is episode 53 of Health Unchained, where I speak with Samson Williams, a former Fannie Mae employee, Overseeing emergency management during the financial housing crisis in two thousand nine. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the movie The Big Short. Samson, Samson is a very delightful. Samson is a very delightful speaker, and I really enjoyed talking to him about how healthcare is really just finance, blockchain. Samson is a very delightful speaker, and I really enjoyed talking to him about how healthcare is really just finance. Also, we talked about blockchain governance, crowdfunding strategies, and the importance of data privacy. So without further ado, let's get to it, folks. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare, these innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show.
1: What is blockchain? What is blockchain? Is blockchain. blockchain. Yes, blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now.
0: Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Samson Williams. Samson is currently a principal consultant for Axes and Eggs, a global advisory firm helping countries in the Middle East and North Africa implement new technologies. He's also an adjunct law professor at Columbia University and the University of New Hampshire. Samson, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Ray. Good to be on. Great great to be on. Uh, So, Samson, I, I understand you also worked as part of the Fannie Mae's emergency management team to navigate like operations during the U.S. national housing crisis. I thought that was a really fascinating uh, experience for you, probably. Can you tell us more about that before we kind of dive into how blockchain and healthcare um, are changing or revolutionizing the healthcare industry?
1: Sure. Uh, I was emergency manager for Fannie Mae from uh, 2008 to 2016. Um, so in 2008, March 24th, 2008, I was my first day at Fannie Mae. Uh, as a, I was actually a contractor for the first four years, and I, they were paying me too much. I had to go to a full-time employer, in an FTE. And that was just the housing crisis was in full swing. Uh, they knew something was up with the economy. At the time, uh, I'd been an emergency manager before, but never for a large financial institution. And so it actually worked out because they didn't know what I was, they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but together we sort of figured it out. And so from uh, during 2008, the definition of an emergency changed. And so it's a little bit emergency management, a little bit crisis management, a little bit, let's just make this up because we need to stabilize our operations to give confidence to the market. Because at the end of the day, whether you're talking about emergency management or crisis management, it all boils down to reputational management. And we're about to see this with the things happening in Iran with the market. Where if we don't have confidence in our business enterprises enterprises and their resiliency, the market sentiment literally translates out to, Ray doesn't feel good about this. Watch the stock go red. And so we're actually going to talk a little bit about that when we talk about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Uh, because, again, it's all about how do people feel about a technology? Are they using it, adopting it? Or are they saying stay, stay away from it?
0: Got it. And when did you first hear about blockchain?
1: Uh, that was still in 2014 when I was at Fannie Mae. Um, our CISO, uh, his name is, at the time, his name was Anthony Johnson, Chief Information Security Officer, the guy who kept all the hackers out of our system. Um, he put me on the Bitcoin, uh, and so I bought some. He also told me to wear better socks, so I wear better socks too. So, <laughs> I, I, it what just, kind of
0: socks just, were you wearing? <laughs> uh,
1: no, one day he walked by, he was like, dude, what's up with your socks? Because uh, Anthony Johnson... Uh, he went on to work at a uh, J.P. Morgan Chase in Capital One, uh, as doing uh, running their cybersecurity. And so he would wear like a Hello Kitty or Star Wars, uh, Darth Vader socks. He always had some. Well, number one, he always had his casual was a three piece suit, but his socks were always funny or comical. And so I probably had on some at the time just some regular old black going to church socks. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Samson, you can't be in the executive office." with these ugly with these ugly socks. So he encouraged me to step up my sock game and actually buy and also got me into Bitcoin as a whole. So he's the problem that I haven't had a successful relationship since 2014.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So when you first started buying Bitcoin uh, and trying to learn about blockchain, what was your first impression? What did you think?
1: Uh, so we learned about it from the operational side of how would blockchain work for mortgages, like in theory. Mm -hmm. Because we, um, and so...
0: Right, everything was a theory at this point, right?
1: Yeah. You know, 2014, it's like, hey, what are the new technologies coming out in five years? So at the time, that new technology was blockchain, so it's like, how would it apply to mortgages? So we we did that uh, mental exercise of, here's how this could apply to mortgages, our mortgage operations more specifically uh, within capital markets. Uh, And for people who don't know about Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae is a bank for banks, meaning... Uh, bank of America gives uh, you a loan or writes you a loan. Fannie Mae buys that loan from Bank of America, gives them money so they can go out and uh, loan someone else uh, additional funds. So B- Fannie Mae's businesses, it's a bank for banks. That's it. Um, and so how does how would blockchain look in that ecosystem? Of course, in 2014 is theoretical. Uh, even nowadays, it's still theoretical. Ah, uh, they might have a couple of small pilots, but you haven't seen the enterprise application of a uh, blockchain anywhere. Um, even though uh, R 3s Corda is um working it out with a couple of folks, and J P Morgan Chase has their own Quorum blockchain, but those are slightly different. Those are some real nerd conversations we can have later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe we can kind of talk about. So you went from this like chaotic time in Fannie Mae where the poll housing. Bubble burst, and everyone's kind of in a panic mode, but you stayed at Fannie Mae still trying to recover help it help the company work through its issues uh as well as you know fun try a way to fix all these mortgages um learn about Bitcoin and blockchain, and then eventually started a company on your own or started working for access and eggs. Can you kind of describe that
1: yeah concept? so um in, so I was, at, I was at Fannie Mae as a contractor from two thousand eight to two thousand nine. And then I used to bother the folks at the health department here in D.C., in Washington, D.C., when they do uh, exercises for, like, hurricanes, response, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so they had an opportunity to be a Cities Ready initiative coordinator. And so if you live anywhere in America or one of the states or territories, uh, if there is a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear energy event, uh, they will send you prophylactics or response or aid within 12 hours. And so here in D.C. for as a CRI coordinator, I later assumed the roles of the SNS coordinator, the Strategic National Stockpile of Medicines, and primarily focused on anthrax um, proactively uh, resolving, uh, providing prophylactics for an anthrax outbreak or an anthrax exposure. That actually, in real world, that meant we're gonna run H1N1 clinics. You might not remember this, but in 2009, 2010, we were all gonna die from the novel flu that was H1N1. So I ran. Was bird uh, flu, right? Bird <laughs> flu, exactly. All right, all right. So I ran uh, about 50 plus uh, clinics for the Health Emergency Preparedness Response Administration for 308 days here in the District of Columbia uh, in 2010. And then I went back to Fannie uh, as to, be, to help them with emergency management. In the last two years at Fannie Mae, I got converted over to the uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for operations and technology, for the operations and technology executive office. And that long story is to say that in 2016, I left Fannie Mae, went over to Ireland to pursue equity and debt crowdfunding. And this is where we really came into the space with blockchain because if you talk about cryptocurrencies or if you talk about tokens or securitized token offerings or STOs or ICOs, you're really talking about unregulated crowdfunding Mm -hmm. and so it was just uh no one ever has like a linear trajectory of where they ended up it's this one time i was at a a bar and here's how i ended up in dublin that took me to uh bielenfeld germany which took me to uh dubai which took me around the uh, gcc or the gulf countries Uh, and so yeah which actually led me right here to ray
0: Well, I'm glad you're here today with us. I think uh, you know this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, so far, it has been. I think, you know, I'd kind of like to understand. So there are lots of consulting companies trying to help companies work through the blockchain field or industry mm-hmm. um, or just trying to understand that technology. But what is X's and X's consulting strategy to kind of help people understand, help executives understand, or even government leaders Um Try to get their head around this blockchain phenomenon?
1: Yeah, so I think in early 2017, we were at the Office of Personnel Management uh, Innovation Lab, OPM's lab, Uh, it's here in Washington, D.C. In half the room, there's probably about 40 people in the room, half of them are industry executives from like Amazon uh, and other startups, they got it. The other half are what we call SES, which are select service folks from the government, And so I needed to explain blockchain to these folks. And two of them had flip phones. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is never going to work. This is one of those government folks who've had the same job for 30 years and don't even know how to, haven't yet mastered email. So I was like, how am I going to explain blockchain to these folks? And it's important that we explain it to them at a level they understand and get, because ultimately they're the decision makers who control the purse strings. Mm -hmm. So... This is where I came up with this way of explaining blockchain as a group text message. And it's super complicated for anyone who's ever been in a group text message, which is like 99% of people. You have two, you have 200 people, you have two people, 200 people, you're all in a group text message, you're exchanging data. Every time you hit enter, you create a new record of that data on the group text. And data can be a meme, a picture, actual directions. say follow Ray at Unchained Health, right? So you're just exchanging data. So you're creating a distributed, it's on everyone's phone, ledger It's a, of records that are timestamped and, and I wouldn't say immutable, but tamper resistant. Because sometimes in the blockchain space, we argue over, are they immutable or are they tamper resistant? But I tell people, if you doubt that blockchain is like a group text message, take an inappropriate picture of yourself and send it out to a group text message, and you will understand that Oh, yes, it's distributed. Just because you delete it on your phone doesn't mean it doesn't exist on everyone else's. It's also tamper resistant because it's always going to live out in the ether. And so when you think of a uh, blockchain as a group text message, people tend to get it. They're like, okay, that's cool. But then we get to the nitty gritty of does your enterprise, does your business need a group text message? And so that's where 99% of the time it comes down to. The answer to that is no, we don't want to show these records even publicly are much less with a private permission blockchain
0: right and i I totally agree i like the way you actually explain try to simplify the idea behind blockchain with that group message you know concept and if you think about it if you had like you know 20 people for example in a group message you would consider that a private blockchain so it's not like not anyone can just join it but if you think about bitcoin for example bitcoin in a way the vision for it is for the group message to be involving everyone in the planet. Basically, everyone can see all the transactions. That's the public blockchain.
1: Yeah, and so it's easier for humans, you know, because part of what we tell our clients and customers all the time, uh, humans love stories, number one, you gotta tell a good story. And so when you're telling this good story, you have to make it relatable. Mm -hmm. And many of the terms that the people in the blockchain space we talk in a bubble, Um, so, if, we're, if I'm talking about DAOs or decentralization or even blockchains, 99% of real humans, decision makers and customers, they have no idea what any of those three terms mean when they're literally like 101. So when you're describing how blockchain may improve operations, you need to make it relatable. And so to your point about public versus private blockchain, it's, hey, you're in a public group chat or in your, you're in a private chat or group text message. Now people can sort of conceptualize, okay, this is where the... Records of the transactions are being housed on this public chain or this private chain, because then you can get down to the nitty gritty of do you want that kind of structure? And number two is, can you afford it? Um, Because often it's, oh, yeah, let's blockchain this. But I'm like, if you want a pilot to launch a pilot blockchain project, it costs about two and a half million dollars. And people are always stunned by the price tag.
0: Right, if you want to do it the right way and actually think about the architecture, not just you know write some code on Solidity and just try to start an ICO with no basis <laughs> or no kind of real use case, um, that's it, fair.
1: Yeah, it's not only the, the architecture. It's also this crazy thing called governance, yes. uh, data management. And, of course, the craziest is uh, basic cybersecurity. It's like you're building this beautiful infrastructure. How are you securing it? And so it's like, what do you mean? We don't need to secure the blockchain. A blockchain has never been hacked. I'm like, that is technically correct, but all the plugins to this chain, those are vulnerabilities. How are you addressing them? And that's why, if you're thinking about, hey, we're going to do a blockchain pi- pilot, if you actually want it to work, and I'm not talking about its scale, you just want it to work on a small, um, at a small scale, you actually, it's going to cost you around two and a half million dollars.
0: So when you tell your clients this. Uh, can you give me like one example from one of your clients in like Dubai or the Middle East that you've been working with, who are working on a project or getting started? Like, what's their vision and how are you helping them?
1: Yeah, maybe so if it's healthcare
0: related, that'd be even even more you know interesting for the audience. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think when we talk, when people say healthcare, I'm always just thinking finance, period. Because for me, healthcare is finance. Um, because if you, particularly in America, if you can't afford it, you ain't got no healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, and um, I'm writing an article with Dr. Gray about um, uh, GoFundMe is the social safety net of last result for healthcare financing in America because it's so expensive. So, when we're in Dubai, we're working with. Uh, we're going to use Samba Bank. Samba Bank is, actually isn't in Dubai; it's in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. It's a Saudi American bank. They're the largest bank around, and so they wanted to blockchain their infrastructure. And this is in uh, 2017, 18. And so we had to have a conversation with them as we've had with many banks that, in order to blockchain your banking infrastructure, you gotta get rid of your paper. You don't put paper on blockchain. So that's number one. And it doesn't matter if you're in finance or in healthcare. If you wanna have a healthcare blockchain, you gotta have electronic health records, first and foremost. And so that's actually a harder hurdle whether you're in the traditional finance finance area or in healthcare, because you have to retrain how, how your doctors, nurses, uh, lab techs, input customer, or not customer, patient data. Uh, so you go get a blood test, there's a piece of paper, that piece of paper, it's not going on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And so it really requires you to rethink your operations because how do you implement an iPad? And on this iPad, what program do you run? And does your app talk to your uh, the rest of your system? And so when we say we're gonna blockchain something, when we actually start to work through that process, it's you're gonna do a digital transformation. And step one is you need to map out your processes. Step two is see which ones you can automate. Step three is getting rid of, when we automate things, we get rid of paper. And step four is training your staff communicating with your staff that we're going to change the way you do something because one of the biggest challenges in the blockchain space isn't the technology it's humans hate the fact that Ray and Samson are about to change the way they've always done something and absolutely so so now we're the bad guys
0: yeah I think change definitely in every industry but specifically I think in healthcare it's so difficult because there are so many regulations around healthcare and how data should be managed Um, And training people at hospitals, you know, people are kind of used to things for, for many years and having any sort of change is difficult, especially when they don't understand why they're doing it. So I think not only instructing them on how to do it, but also why, like, why is this change good for them? Or why is it operationally more efficient? And, you know, I think when people understand the why, they're more kind of inspired to be part of that change.
1: Yeah, and but and making understanding the why or explaining the why requires leadership to communicate. And often that you know, we're we're operating in these silos. We really want to implement this new system that's gonna save us or make us X amount of dollars. And this is the other moment of pause for banks and healthcare folks. Do you have a large enough ecosystem that warrants a blockchain? Meaning uh, if you're Anthem Health, you having your own blockchain is like you having your own database if you don't have Blue Cross and Blue Shields being able to look at your patients. Because then it's really going to push what is an in-network and what is an out-of-network service. And do you actually want to share this data? Uh, this gentleman named Sean Mannion, he always says that uh, he he deals with scientists. He says scientists are more likely to share toothbrushes than data, which I think is a great Little saying because when we talk about healthcare, we're really talking about finance and big data. Because it's one, you got to pay for healthcare. And number two, it's now that we have all this data, this information on our patients, how are we using it? How are we mining it? How are we monetizing it? And so, are all these different tribes, whether it's United Healthcare, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or CVS, by the way, CVS is doing amazing things um, just in the business side of things. How are they going to agree to come together, form of Form a consortium to share this treasure trove of data. Mm -hmm. And so, when we talk about, hey, we're going to blockchain healthcare, we're going to blockchain banking and finance. Part of it is, do you have a large enough ecosystem to to be able to build, maintain, and sustain a blockchain uh, electronic health system? And is there interoperability with your competitors? Mm Because if there's interoperability with your competitors, it's like, hold on, Ray is going to use my blockchain to make money, and I'm not going to benefit from this this sounds so un-American.
0: Right. Um, It's it's pretty interesting. You know, you mentioned consortiums, you know, 2019, 2018, there were a lot of talk about consortiums being built and we've seen some pretty large ones uh, in the health healthcare space that have, you know, come together. And I think, you know, 2020 will also be, you know, a year where that'll continue to be developed. Um, So I think you're absolutely right without the actual network and opening up your doors to other companies and even competitors, you won't really get the true benefits of uh, like a blockchain or decentralized ledger technology. Yeah. Um, you could have thing... a... go ahead.
1: Oh no, you could just have the hybrid model, the public private blockchain, but again, it's how will, it's, I wanna look underneath your hood because the moment you show me your data, I know what you're collecting. So then I'm like, okay, if I know he's collecting this particular type of data, Number one is how are they collecting And Number two, how are you monetizing that data? Because the only reason you're collecting data is to monetize it. And so if I can improve or get a, a marginal improvement on your on your thought process, I'm done with you. And so again, when we talk about healthcare, what I like about the um, United Arab Emirates in Dubai is that when you're in the kingdom, uh, if you're a Emirati, it's all one healthcare system. And so for the locals, the Emiratis, it's all one healthcare system uh, because it's a monarchy. And so it's like, yes, you must follow these rules. You must open up your uh, databases. Uh, Dubai is going uh, paperless by December 12th, 2020, this year. Mm -hmm. So Dubai launched their blockchain strategy in 2016, just to give Mm -hmm. you some context. So by December 12th, 2020, they will be... The government will be paperless, meaning the conversations we're having about electronic health records are to be paperless. They'll be cashless, meaning they're focused on uh, digital cash, credit cards. Uh, I forget the name of the cryptocurrency that the UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia are working on. It'll come to me. Uh, and then 25% of the the Dubai's uh, public transportation will be autonomous. I think they're going to crush the first two goals. That last goal is. Making vehicles autonomous is actually easier, easy. Getting humans, uh, training humans how to interact with autonomous vehicles, that's the hard part.
0: When was the autonomous transportation part? Uh, oh,
1: it's, it's all December 12th,
0: 2020. This year, so, wow, yeah. Yeah, so it's very I, ambitious. Yeah, for,
1: <laughs> I forgot. No, no, but they launched this in 2016. So when I started saying this in 2016, it was like, oh, that's like years in the, in the future. But now it's like, oh, yeah, it's at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, but not only Dubai, but the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they have their own. Uh, uh. So the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has their 2030 vision and within their 2030 vision. And if you just Google uh, Saudi Arabia 2030 vision, it'll show you what their blockchain strategy is. All of that to say here in the States, we're a little behind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, I've actually never been to Dubai or to Saudi Arabia, but I did hear about how On the streets, they have like vending machines with gold. You could buy gold. Basically, (laughs) is that true? Do they have that's not everywhere, but
1: it is true. It is, they're not everywhere, but it is true. And again, it's the it's when you have a monarchy and you and you have and the His Royal Highness sets a date, you're going to hit that date because generally, in my and working there over the last few years, it's they don't mind paying a premium if you deliver on time. And so, yes, here in America, that same system would cost you a billion dollars. But in Dubai, they're happy to pay two billion dollars. They just want to deliver it on time. Um, And so if you take a step back and you look at the GCC or the Gulf community as a whole, Dubai looked at what Silicon Valley did for the Internet. And they said, hey, they put all this money into startups and innovation in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. And as a result, Silicon Valley is what Silicon Valley is today. And so they said, if we're going to go into the next chapter of digital transformation, uh, which is blockchain, uh, as well as artificial intelligence, how does Dubai do what Silicon Valley does? So Dubai is, if you're looking for funding, if you're looking for um, resources, Dubai is happy to entertain entrepreneurs and startups from around the world. And because of where they sit on the nexus of Everyone from Africa comes to Dubai. Everyone from Southeast Asia comes to Dubai. everyone from Europe comes to Dubai. It's very competitive, but it's also a rich place because when you think of where your future customers are coming from uh the u s has negative pop where to from a population perspective we're neutral and but the rest of the world is growing faster so the customers are definitely coming out of uh, Africa and Southeast Asia
0: hmm Interesting. Do you, so, does Dubai have a policy on crowdfunding and ICOs at the moment? Do you know about that? Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: this gentleman, Prim from GRIP, GRIP, I forget what GRIP stands for, um, but when we talk about crowdfunding and ICOs, um, Emmerich Exchange, M Exchange uh, by Irina Heaver, so they will help you. I'll send you some if you just type in Irina Heaver Dubai. You can find her company, um, and they will help you launch your business on their exchange. And so they do uh, quote unquote STO, Securitized Token Offerings. Generally speaking, uh, there's no such thing as accredited or, or unaccredited investors in Dubai. Accredited unaccredited investors actually is a U.S. concept, hmm. and so meaning. Uh, our retail investor versus an accredited investor. So, an accredited investor is anyone who makes more than two hundred thousand dollars a year. A retail investor is anyone who makes less. There's some other nuances, but for uh, conversational parts, that's what it is. So, in Dubai, those those type of uh, investor clarific those types of investor classifications don't exist. So, in Dubai, if you want to invest in a business, you can, um, uh, and so anyone can invest, and so they do do crowdfunding. Uh, in Dubai. And so they just have different regulatory author- authorities from the Abu Dhabi financial regulatory authority, uh, ADGM. And so they have some rules for crowdfunding. They're very similar to, uh, just best practices for know what you're actually investing in, know what you're, know, be aware of if you're getting a good product or service, what it is, who the actors are and et cetera. Hmm.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. I think last time we talked, um, you, we were we were talking about reg CF in the states and reg CF is basically uh, came out of the jobs act something uh, it was law by the Obama administration allowing people who are not accredited investors to actually invest in small startups up to a million dollars i mean I think a lot of people globally don't have that kind of um, as you mentioned it's a accredited investors is a American thing so how important is the reg cF opportunity in America for startups and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I
1: mentioned Grip, G R I P if you go to gripinvestments.com. Uh they're a firm that's based out of uh, Dubai that helps with crowdfunding. And so when we f- come back to the states with the Jobs Act, so the Jobs Act which stands for jumpstart our businesses and startups. Hmm. It was uh, it was a law that was passed in 2012. The banks and the VCs and lobbyists lobbied it to death, so it didn't actually get signed until 2016. And this is, I think, important for startups and existing businesses to be aware of and know that. Uh, with Jobs at crowdfunding under Reg CF, and the government is very creative when it comes to naming regulations. They just call it Reg CF. Uh, it stands for Regulation Crowdfunding. Um, that you a business can raise up to a million dollars using reg cf from accredited and retail investors and so this is a big deal because if you're trying to get your healthcare business or your lifestyle business off the ground you actually want to reach out to your customers and say hey i'm launching a fitbit tracker business and as part of that uh, crowdfunding works just like shark tank meaning you're going to go pitch. You're going to say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a million dollars for 10% of uh, of my company, and you can invest as little as 200 bucks or $100. And for that $100, you get X amount of shares equals X amount percentage of the company, right? You're a super tiny owner. You're a super tiny shark. Right. But now that you're a part owner in this uh, medical tracker, fitness tracker, that's the only fitness tracker you're ever going to use. And so one of the things that... Uh, Business owners haven't been aware of. They they've heard of venture capital, our VC world. They've heard of private equity and hedge funds, and of course banks. All of those compete with equity crowdfunding. There are other types of crowdfunding, like debt crowdfunding. Means you're getting a loan, and of course everyone knows uh, Indiegogo and GoFundMe, which are donation rewards. And so when you're donating, you're donating. When you're getting a reward, meaning you give me a hundred dollars, I give you a tracker, but. Your reward is a tracker. You don't own any equity. But when we're talking about equity crowdfunding, your customers have more money than venture capital. Hmm. And so I tell this to uh, the folks we advise. I'm like, Ray, your customers, they have more money than VCs. And you're like, Samson, that sounds crazy. I'm like, let me explain why. Um, A VC gives you $10 million for 40% of your company. Chances are in 18 months, you're not even going to be part of that organization anymore so one of the on the dark side of investment is is uh 54 of founders are out within 18 months of accepting VC money uh-huh. why because ray you created a great company you've never scaled it it's not your fault ray you've mm-hmm. just never scaled this company i, br- I brought in uh, susan and that's all susan does she scales healthcare companies this will be her fifth one and so ray you're out uh basically it's ray uh, we're gonna take your kid and and Susan's gonna adopt your kid. Get out. Here's the here's severance. Um, you may be able to keep the title of founder, depending on on the terms of your deal. Uh, but if you when VCs give you $10 million, 60% of that goes to marketing, advertising, and customer acquisition. Because you're gonna spend six million dollars getting customers. The other four million dollars goes to operations, paying, you know, paying salaries, health insurance, et cetera. And so when you think of the lifetime value of your customer versus the of your customers versus the lifetime value of, of a VC investor, which has more? A VC is gonna invest 10 million in you and take 40 to 60 percent of your company. Whereas a customer, they might say, Hey, Ray, I love your lifestyle tracker, your health tracker. I'm going to invest $500 in you and I'm going to have a subscription with you for the next 10 years. And so it's not just one customer, because in order for your business to be successful, you probably need 2,000 customers, 10,000 customers. So if you've gone out and using uh, equity crowdfunding, this reg CF, if you've engaged 2,000 of your customer base, each of them to invest 500 bucks, you're at the million dollars. Congratulations. Congratulations more importantly you have a small army of 2000 biz dev slash marketers who because now that they have an investment they have skin in the game for your health business they tell everyone oh no race health tracker is the best health tracker out there you should try this and this is a little bit different model where vcs they give you money so you can go spend the bulk of it on customer acquisition marketing advertising whereas equity crowdfunding is you have to engage customers anyhow get them to have some skin in the game and then go forth and be awesome. And this is where the VC world and the angel world is at conflict with the private equity world. I'm sorry, with the equity crowdfunding world, because in equity crowdfunding, you, the startup owner, the founder, you can dictate your own term sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, there's this woman named Dawn Dixon. You can check her out at popcom. Um, that's her name of her business is popcom. Uh, and so, uh, She was able to raise with Rake CF, you can raise up to a million seventy thousand dollars. So she maxed out on that. She raised a million seventy thousand dollars using Rake CF from I think she had 2100 investors. The average investments was around five hundred sixty bucks. If you just Google Popcom, uh, Popcom Start Engine because her deal was hosted on StartEngine and StartEngine is a FINRA approved platform and FINRA stands for Financial Regulatory Authority because all of this Reg CF stuff is regulated by the SEC and FINRA. Um, So you know what you're getting into and all investment is risky. I probably should have given a disclaimer earlier. Uh, All investment is risky. It's a great way to lose all your money. But if you want to say, hey, I want to invest in startups or I want to fund my business, check out what PopCom did on StartEngine and it will show you her deal, her offering, and how she was able to raise her $1,070,000. And these are her words, not mine, but I love it when she said it. Because when she was able to raise this $1,070,000 from her 2,000 customers, that gave her fuck you money. Yeah. And fuck you money is important. She's telling me fuck you money is important because when VCs later came to ask her, they said, hey, do you want our money? She's like, here's my term sheet. You have 72 hours to complete it. If you don't, fuck you. And, and if you're a startup, that's a big deal because so many of the term sheets are predatory. Because again, there's a 50-50 chance that after you accept VC money, you're not gonna be running your business in 18 months.
0: How many blockchain or cryptocurrency companies are using the REG-CF um, you know, process?
1: Oh, so that's why I brought up Popcom because they they offered equity and a token.
0: And the token. So, okay.
1: so they did an STO. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first person who did it. They did this in August of 2019. Um, so it's a little old older. You will see that many people are retroactively uh they're paying a fine. Um yeah. uh, they're paying a fine to say, okay, we, we were actually a security, my bad here's a couple of million dollars. The other company who did a Reg A um, offering for their blockchain base is um, Block One. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's either Block One or Block Stack. Uh, I'll have to Google this later. I'll drop it in your comments. So they paid $2 million to their legal team to come up with the paperwork so they could offer their token. And so the challenge with that is, if you're a startup, you might not have 2 million dollars just to cover your legal expenses right and so they i, I believe they re, they raised 13 million dollars uh initially in their reggae they did what's called a reggae plus deal and so there you'll see that they set the they set the blueprint for how businesses can raise money using quote unquote tokens um but again you just need to be you need to be aware of that I was having a conversation with someone. I was like, have you ever seen any ICO, or blockchain business, go on Shark Tank? Not yet. The answer to that is no. Uh, Because Mark Cuban and Mr. Wonderful and the rest of them, you can't get up in front of them and say, I'm going to give you this digital gummy bear. I'm going to give you this token. Because the first thing Mr. Wonderful is going to ask you is, what are your earning statements? Mm -hmm. What does this token give me? he's greedy He's like what does this give me and so when you're in front of the sharks and you're like oh no this token will be used in the future to access this thing they'll be like i don't want to talk about future things i want to talk about numbers today and so this is where the blueprint has been laid for yes you can raise money uh for using a token but just because you raise money raising money isn't your business and so Whatever your business is, that's your business. You can be an ice cream shop or a healthcare provider. That's your business, your healthcare provider. Blockchain is a tool that your healthcare service might use. The question is, will it make you any money? we have to think about that from an operational uh, sense. If you have a token or crypto within your healthcare ecosystem, okay, why are you issuing this? And the reason you're issuing the token or the crypto in your healthcare sense is to raise money. And so it's like, Using a token or a crypto or blockchain as most people imagine it, that's actually a fundraising mechanism. Mm-hmm. And fundraising should be a 6 to 18-month journey, and it isn't actually your business. Healthcare is your business, not raising money for your healthcare business. And so it's hard for some people to realize, okay, my business is I have a health tracker, uh, uh you know, something I wear on my wrist. That's my business. I want to raise money to fund my business. You don't need blockchain for that. You don't need a token, you don't need an STO. You need a lawyer who can walk you through uh, how securities work, how raising money works, using the Jobs Act, either Reg CF where you can raise up to a million, Reg A where you can raise up to 50 million, and Reg D which has an unlimited raise amount but some other little nuances to it.
0: Interesting, That's thank you so much for explaining that. I think that's very helpful and beneficial for um, a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. So thank you for that. Welcome to the Health on Chain News Corner. For this news corner, I'd like to highlight a couple 2019 year in review reports written by my guests, Robert Miller, who was featured in episode 43, and Dr. Alex Kahana on episode 25. Bert Miller is a trusted senior healthcare technology consultant at Consensus who wrote a comprehensive report summarizing the healthcare blockchain headlines in 2019. I highly recommend everyone listening to the show to read Bert's annual report, as it will give you a good explanation of the active healthcare consortium ecosystems, also the successful and failed decentralized ledger technology projects going on, and just general technology adoption across the industry. Bert also runs a great weekly newsletter that I encourage you all to subscribe to. The link to the report and the weekly newsletter is in the show notes. Dr. Alex Kahana's review of 2019 was published in Coindesk, one of the most respected blockchain news media platforms. In it, he describes three factors that will determine if 2020 will be an incremental or transformational year for blockchain. Those three factors are, one, whether or not we will have better blockchain education for healthcare professionals. Two, will we be able to explain to people why we should adopt blockchain instead of just describing it. The why is what's important here. And three, the institutional mistrust voters may experience during the 2020 U.S. election. You know, think targeted political ad campaigns using centralized platforms like Facebook. For a link to the full article, check out my show notes. And now back to my conversation with Samson Williams. Let's kind of jump into artificial intelligence and big data and how, you know, the future is going to look and new business models will be built um, around our AI. Um, Mm -hmm. What have you seen in the AI field and how it's, you know, developing? Obviously, it's been decades, really, that we've had AI. Uh, But just recently, I think there's been a lot of hot talk about it, especially with blockchain. And, you know, in my opinion, I think that a true, you know, public... Or a true AI that really uses um, like public data needs to have a blockchain. I don't think it'd be secure without a blockchain. That's my perspective, but what do you think? Uh, I agree with you, but there's so many
1: caveats and asterisks and sure. nuances. And you know, so first, uh, in March 10th and 11th, I'll be in Dubai at the AI Everything Conference. I'm going to mm-hmm. give a presentation on AI anger management um that's interesting and, yeah yeah but so ai anger management is if you have a singularity event and you have what's known as general ai meaning it's sentient ai ray knows that ai ray exists your most talk about workplace violence when your ai who runs everything says you know what ray you didn't say good morning to me i'm burning everything down <laughs> uh, and so uh ai anger management when we think about that when we talk about blockchain in a public blockchain and is needed ai right now is narrow ai Mm -hmm. meaning it can do very specific tasks pretty well it's getting smarter and so if you have alexa or siri you can ask it basic questions you can't have a full-fledged conversation and so ai to your point is all the way around us part of where ai is headed in the future for disruption is voice And by voice, I mean like neural net net learning, natural language processing, where you say, hey, Alexa, hey, Google, Uh, right now you have a, oh, my phone is trying to talk to me. Uh, um, Our devices are always listening, that's a different conversation about privacy. But right now your TV, your monitor, you can't have a conversation with it. You can look at a medical chart, or you can look at an X-ray, but you can't look at the X-ray and then ask the X-ray machine or the how, the AI who runs your healthcare care system, hey, Hal, what is this? And you're, whether you're pointing at what you think is a fracture or a breast tumor or some abnormal growth, you can't do that now. The AI can identify, can look through thousands of images and say, based upon these 10,000 images we've looked at, these 20 look like they're cancerous. And now a human can come in and be like, okay, out of the 20, there's actually only five of them that were cancerous and they can come up with treatments, But you can't have an actual conversation with your monitor yet. I think in the future, uh, and when I say in the future, I'm talking five years from now, you'll be able to take some medical version of uh, Siri or Alexa and say, hey Alexa, I'm looking at this patient's chart. What does this mean? What happens if I give them this medication? Does anything else in their uh, medicine cabinet conflict or cause an allergic reaction? And then the AI will say, yes, no, et cetera, make recommendations. We're not there yet. Wait five years. Yeah. But to to your point about a blockchain, so this is just the general future as I see it developing in the rest of the world. You have to understand that America, yes, we know we're number one in the world. But when it comes to innovation, technology, and uh, what's next, we're probably number 17-ish, maybe.
0: Um, Who would you say is number one?
1: uh, It's probably a toss-up. It really goes by category. I'm a big fan of the Emirates, Dubai. But if you look at Estonia, Malta, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, Mauritius, it really depends on what type of technology you're talking about. Um, Suffice to say, America is not number one. Uh, And so everyone assumes that AI, our general artificial intelligence, will be American when it's like, you guys watch too many movies. General AI will be programmed by a Chinese Nigerian who learned how to program off of YouTube and it will become self-aware on a server on a Huawei Chinese-made server in Chennai, India. Because that's how globalization works. And so we have to stop thinking that if we had general AI, it would be have an American ethos or morality or standard of our thinking process again it's probably chinese nigerian and it's probably going to become aware of itself in india just because the math says so uh, there's more of them than us
0: so what do you think this you know general ai will want what what's the goal what will be its mission or objective is it going to be just collect as much data as possible because if that's the case then privacy like you mentioned is going to be a huge issue, and we need to start thinking about that now before everything's already out there. Maybe it already is too late. <laughs> okay.
1: uh, and so, this is what uh, my upcoming book, uh, AI Anger Management, focuses on is because, and let me just lay the landscape. You have 5G enabled networks that are mm-hmm. blockchain encrypted, meaning blockchain is a great way of encrypting uh, transactions and information and data. It's so well encrypted, you can display it publicly, right? Oh, yeah, blockchain. So. 5G networks, blockchain encrypted, and so these 5G networks—do your cell phones, your smart devices, your IoT devices—they're sucking up terabytes of data every moment. That's why China right now is crushing it when it comes to AI. They have a billion people who they're running facial recognition algorithms and collecting data, and it's making their it's smarter.
0: And those citizens Um, don't have a choice either. It's just they don't have a choice upon them, yeah.
1: And China exports that technology through it's called their belt and road initiative and so from 2014 to now china has invested between four and eight trillion dollars in 70 plus countries around the world typically for infrastructure and ports but then to secure the port they also bring in their physical security videograph or videography and surveillance tech as part of that loan or package to that uh country so they just get more data they're able to suck in more data because uh, Chinese are homogenous or have phenotypical homogenous traits, meaning they all look alike. And so they're more than happy to say, hey, we just lent someone in Tanzania, uh, Dejabuti, Ethiopia, uh, the Maldives, Botswana, Nigeria, South Africa, uh, Sudan, a billion dollars. Let's also give them these video cameras that help suck up. Those faces, again, wow. is, they're, they're building a digital dynasty that, again, America, we're not even in the top. We're barely in the top 20. 20. Um, so 5G networks sucked up all this day, terabytes of data into this thing called the cloud. Once it hits the uh, 5G data from IoT devices, meaning your refrigerator is spying on you, as well as Alexa, anything with a microphone and a video camera, which is everything, uh, is sucked up into the cloud. And the cloud runs on servers. A cloud is... It's a computer is just not your computer. Uh, more and more of these servers are made in China by a small company called Huawei. Mm-hmm. And so as they hit the cloud, it's, hey, it's big data time. It's analytics. It's how do we take this raw data and process it into a financial instrument or into an intelligence packet. And it really depends on what, do you, what are you looking for. And so this is where your AI comes in, and it makes that – and it deciphers the data to turn it into that intelligence package. And so, when we talk about where AI is going, when we look at credit scores, and particularly in the financial system, we look at credit scores. The bank, uh, the banks are good at it. Amazon is better. Amazon knows how much money you've got, how much money you've made, based upon your spending habits and your other devices. Because in the fine print of your terms and conditions, when you signed up for. Alexa, Amazon, Audible, or any of the other uh, dozen billion-dollar companies they own, um, they, they understand who Ray is at a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. They've got a better credit rating, a better way of rating you for credit than a bank does. And so the future of AI is wrought with who owns your data, data sovereignty, data privacy, um, who gets to monetize said data, and then when Facebook starts selling your Facebook bought uh, Fitbit. And so when Facebook starts selling I think Google,
0: your... I think Google oh, bought Fitbit. Google. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. When Google bought Fitbit, mm-hmm. now Google is selling your insurance companies uh, data on Ray to say, we think that Ray has a 85% chance of having a heart attack before he hits age 53. Mm-hmm. And after they run this algorithm a few times, it's like, yeah, we're pretty right. So the health insurance turn around and say, Ray... Uh, your new deductible is death yeah (laughs) Uh. and so it's it this the genie is out of the box in many respects but these aren't technical problems that we're talking about these are human problems because uh as part of this book that i'm writing ai anger management i call them human enabled or i'm sorry ai enabled ai equipped humans and so AI-equipped humans will do what humans have always done since we walked out of Africa and met the first Neanderthals. We will use technology. We went from stones and fire and clubs to uh, AI. To How do we control, manipulate, uh, and dominate other humans? So you'll have humans who are equipped with AI who decide that, hey, the rest of humans who don't have AI who can't challenge our supremacy. Because when we talk about data, we're really talking about how do you control the flow of information? And in a digital ecosystem or a digital landscape, a digital business environment, when you can control the flow of information, you can control the outcomes, you can determine the outcomes. And it gets a little bit dark, 1984-ish, but this is where we just have to collectively come up to a standard to say, we're not addressing a technology policy. We're addressing exploitation, we're addressing greed, and we're addressing as a human, you have a fundamental human right to data sovereignty. Uh, There's a great organization called My31, it's ran by Richie Etowah. Um, Mm -hmm. If you put in My31 in Google, you can find out about what they do because they pitch the UN so that the 31st human right is data ownership. And I don't think we're, that's that's a policy decision. Uh, Right now, the cat's already out of the bag, the data cat is already out of the bag when we talk about uh, Huawei. When we talk about Facebook and Google and Amazon, but we got to figure this out.
0: So, question about Huawei. Actually, um, first of all, great points. But for Huawei, is there a good reason why the U.S. you know thought about banning or has banned Huawei devices for uh, in the defense industry and other industries too?
1: Uh, it's just corporate espionage.
0: That's all. So um, it's not. So is there some sort of chip in all Huawei devices that are secretly collecting information? Like you mentioned the cameras. Is that a secret that they're collecting that information or is it like told to the recipients?
1: I think it's a secret like global warming is a secret. Okay. You know, and so if you have a device that's origin is in China, chances are it has some kind of backdoor built into it for the Chinese government. If you build a blockchain program a project on Neo. Yeah. Um, you, chances there, there is definitely a backdoor, um, backdoor for uh, the Chinese government because again, they're like, oh, if you want to, it's China Inc. Right. So mm-hmm. if you think of China as a company, they want to do what's best for the company. And China doesn't think on the terms of four years, one presidency, or a quarter. They're thinking, how are we going to dominate for the next hundred years? And so part of that, when you look at the billions of dollars spent on research and development, it's so much easier to just hack someone than it is to spend $20 billion or $100 billion developing the latest in uh, fighters, or F-35 fighters. Um, And the other part of it is, in the early 90s, Silicon Valley, because it was cheaper to produce chips in China, we gave up our supply chain security. And so when you talk about medical devices, I was was having this conversation with a gentleman at uh, Health and Human Services, um, because corporate espionage, supply chain espionage, is how do you get medical devices that are going to monitor the health of our troops, both domestically and internationally, that don't report back to China because they weren't made Mm -hmm. in China? And again, we're talking very small, micron-sized chips. And it could be anything from a blood pressure cup to a defibrillator, to just knowing how many bags of plasma are being shipped to Iraq, Iran, or being shipped anywhere. And so someone in China just wants to know, hey, we just saw an uptick of the number of, of plasma orders that are going to uh, Baghdad. There's, there's where you're collecting this, inf- this intel, this data, that you can turn it into intel. And so it was just cheaper to get things made in China. And as a result, we're stuck in the best of supply chain espionage not that the u.s. doesn't also do it uh, so if you're on a cisco router or a YWA router you just have a different agent who's controlling and accessing that information and if we'd learned anything from edward snowden when it comes to surveillance america does it uh, covertly as well as the chinese do it and facebook knows how to do it better than both of them combined
0: amazing everything happy is news, out there happy There's news no... all around <laughs> Well, you know, it might be just the way it's going to be. Everything will just become a transparent mm-hmm. transaction. Everything you do is just out and open. I mean, if you think about it, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, no one would have imagined sharing your personal images on the Internet for everyone to see and comment on. That, that was, like, unthinkable, like your private photos. Even, uh-huh. like, your, you know, family photos, no one really thought about sharing that with random people on the entire, you know, 8 billion people in the in the world. So, um, it's interesting. One yeah, thing I wanted cult- to just add, uh, you mentioned NEO uh, just for the audience. So that NEO is kind of like a Chinese version of a blockchain infrastructure. So sort of like Chinese Ethereum or something. Um, so that's what I just wanted them to know about that.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's safe to say that China cloned Ethereum and called it NEO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Corporate espionage. They're like, oh, look, that works so well. We're just going to call it NEO. Let's just change the name. Yeah. Um, yeah. So part of it is the, from a cultural shift nowadays, you used to keep a diary, right? And in your diary, wrote your Decapist Darker Secrets. Your diary nowadays for millennials and, XY and XYZ generation is YouTube or Instagram or Twitter. Uh, your diary is a blog. You probably blog about how you're feeling, you're depressed, et cetera. And so it is a cultural shift, but you don't want to normalize that private corporations have unlimited access to your children's data. Because, Ray, you're my data, we're screwed, right? It's all out. But we can determine, do, our, do we wanna make it normal that Facebook, Amazon, Apple, the things, um, that they have unlimited, unfettered access to our, grandkids, our children and our grandkids' data? Because particularly as a person of color coming from a, a black and Mexican background, there's so much unconscious bias programmed into the data that goes into AI and from a financial perspective it's this is why i can't get a loan i get a loan at a higher rate because i live in this historically black our minority neighborhood and then when we talk about uh preeclampsia in african american women i was i have some of the weirdest conversations but we were talking about preeclampsia in african american women and the birth the mortality rate for african american women uh, for childbirth here in the states versus abroad and again and in in when it comes to uh, Mortality during pregnancy in America—we suck.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're
1: not even in the top twenty, like yeah. in like the healthiest places that have a baby. How is that possible?
0: I'm with you. Uh, lots of room for improvements. I totally agree. Okay, I think let's get into the public health and policy a little bit more. So, what what do you think are the best decentralized ledger technology applications for public health and policy? You, you, met- you mentioned a few. Uh, during this conversation, but what do you think, like, kind of comes to mind?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it starts off with uh, identification. And so whatever you're going to do, you need to know that, which who which ray am I talking to? Mm, okay. are, which ray, who's, there are six million rays in the U.S. Whose medical records am I looking at? Because when we talk about, hey, we want to, we want to look at, uh, we want to blockchain public health, you actually have to know which person you're talking to because that helps you define which population they're from and this goes into population health but at the same time it's well now that i know exactly who this is which ray this is that he's in boston he's on the corner of fifth and maine in boston how do we anonymize that data in a blockchain
0: okay yeah i think that's <laughs> actually a really good point i think that'd be the not just in healthcare, but all over, like financial. Who's who is this person I'm lending money to, or in like I guess. So you're you're correct because, again, when we talk when I
1: talk about healthcare, I really mean finance because right. again, if you can't afford it, it don't really matter. And um, we the U.S. spends I think it's three hundred eighty billion dollars a year on healthcare administration costs. Mm-hmm. That's not. I'm touching a patient. I'm giving them uh, some type of care. That's just paperwork. So, uh, Health and Human Services. I want to say they're the seventh largest payer in the world. They pay more tra- transactions in credit card than uh, Visa and Mastercard, uh, and that's because they pay Medicare and Medicaid. So, people say healthcare. I think finance. I don't understand why you guys are bifurcating the difference. And so, when we talk about public health, it's like, okay, you guys should talk to the finance guys because the finance guys are going to say, which patient got this care? And the reason why I think there will be the greatest pushback in public health and in just healthcare in general with blockchain is transparency. If I can see how much an appendicitis, an, append- an appendectomy costs in Boston versus DC versus Baltimore oh, it's going to completely change health insurance.
0: Yeah, I think there's been uh, a few laws that have been passed to kind of address this issue of making prices at hospitals more transparent and also machine readable um, so that they can process it through you know some sort of software. Um, you know, it's In funny. The- I had a professor, a business professor, who would say the same thing. He was a healthcare business professor, and he would tell us, always follow the money. So you're definitely <laughs> onto something with uh, healthcare is finance. Concept. Yeah,
1: because if you blockchain records, okay, who ha- who gets access to this? Because, again, if I'm in, I'm just going to use Baltimore, uh, Maryland. If I'm in Baltimore, uh, if I am, is always, a, a railroad tracker, or Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, if I'm on the west side, and if I'm in West Baltimore, it has the same life expectancy of folks in uh, North Korea around 58 years old, versus if I'm in Patterson Park, uh, the life expectancy is like 76 over in Patterson Park versus 58 literally two miles away. If I can track and see the different healthcare services they're provided and the cost associated with each, you can fundamentally go to a healthcare provider or a hospital, I think the worst are the ambulances, and say, why are you charging $28,000 for what is a 10-minute Uber ride?
0: Right. And I I know that Lyft and Uber also get into the healthcare (laughs) space too, which is going to be fascinating to watch as how that unfolds. And and so
1: when we talk about blockchain and healthcare, they're really finance questions because they're really policy. They're finance policy questions. It's can we have a transparent system where we can hold people accountable? Uh, The other day on NPR, there was a lady who sent them, I forget the name, I got to remember it. A lady got a bill for like $30,000 for uh, out of network. Maybe it's twenty-eight thousand dollars for an out-of-network test for uh, her. Her doctor ran. I think this is also in Massachusetts or Connecticut, one of the two. And so her part of the her copay was twenty-five hundred bucks, and the doctor's pay was twenty-eight thousand. And so her health insurance provider sent her the check for twenty-eight thousand. The doctor said, "Hey, we'll waive your copay and we'll send a courier to pick up the check from you because they had done this out-of-network test for to test." It was like the, if the cold was caused by a virus or something. All this useless stuff. Because by the time they got the test results back, she was feeling better. But this is a normal business practice.
0: Yeah, definitely so, a lot of gaps and a lot of ways to play the game of the insurance. Uh, so obviously. yeah, when we talk about
1: health, public health, because there's money being squandered in public health that could actually be used for smoking cessation. That could be used for addressing. Uh, vaping amongst teenagers that can be used for the obesity epidemic, and so I think the transparency of blockchain is a big stopping point for most poly- for most decision makers because, God forbid, we hold them accountable.
0: Right. It's not just the administrative cost, but like you're kind of alluding to, it's the there's a lot of fraud in the system, and that can be kind of eliminated or at least reduced if we can make it more transparent.
1: But Ray, if you reduce the fraud, how am I going to buy myself a new? island
0: well there's going to be a lot of people fighting it (laughs) for sure it's going to take time because these people have to give up that power or at least get caught which is you know time consuming and is going to cost resources for you know our government and all these institutions but i think eventually you know it's bound to happen as we become a more transparent society
1: Mm -hmm. i was trying to think of what is the best way we could track when we were in jamaica this past summer like what could we put what public information could we have up there that no one could get too offended about our use for political gains. Uh, we initially proposed tracking uh, stray dogs or stray animals um, that got the least amount of pushback um, because we couldn't do recyclables or garbage, because then if we know how much garbage you are generating, one, we can do something, we can penalize you in some way. And two, if we know how much, how you are, or are not recycling, we can penalize you on that. And so there was, we talked about could we just track stray dogs Hmm. um and again this is that forerunner that pilot because if you one give a dog an identification and two spay it neuter it or, or euthanize it now that's the start of building a health record for a canine um and then how do you flip it from canines to humans it's actually it's just it's just the customer it's the patient um, so it's it's again transparency brings accountability, and this is where, from a public health perspective and a policy perspective, where when people think, "Hey, blockchain, electronic health records," it's like, "Do you want to share the data?" And once you once you share the data, who has access to it, and how can they? And once they start analyzing that data, who's going to deal with the blowback?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's liable um, for any issues that do come up
1: as well? And part of the liability is you have ethical liability you have moral liability and then you have legal liability so the ethics and the moral people are like whatever but the legal is like hold on you can show that in this part of the city we do not fund um prenatal care right if you live in this this zip code we the city spends an average of 400 dollars on for every pregnancy on prenatal care if you live five blocks away across this ch- train track, it drops to 50 cents. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think, like, blockchain overall is going to bring on a lot of conversations about moral, ethical, especially legal.
1: And so I wish I had more, like, solid answers for you. And I tell people, even if a blockchain is like a flashlight, it shines a it, it light, it brings attention to an inequity or an issue. And just because blockchain might not be used to fix it doesn't mean blockchain hasn't served its purpose now that we know that hey this is an issue it's going to remain an issue even if you don't use blockchain to fix it right. the question is how are we going to address this particularly when we talk about uh, access to healthcare care um, and affordability of healthcare. how do we address that and those aren't technical problems per se those are we need better policies but it requires humans to be less human and be more humane and humans hate being humane to each other. Like why can't we just do them like the Neanderthals and kill (laughs) off all the weak? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, all right. So I have a few more questions here, uh, kind of more general. What global problem are you most concerned with or even obsessed with today?
1: Uh, blindness. Hmm. Um, just a part of just getting old and geriatric. Um, So the other day I was getting off the train and a gentleman uh, who had a, you know, he's got his stick with a little red ball at the end and some sunglasses on. And he, this is here in uh, Washington, D.C. He was standing there going around in a circle with his stick and then he just started talking. I was the only person around. He's like, which way is the escalator? Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, and because I was literally the only person there. And I was like, uh, hey, the escalator, is it's about uh, 100 feet that way. And so then I said, hey, I describe—I was describing to him where the escalator was. And I said, do you want me to guide you there? Because I forgot how to interact with someone who's visually impaired or blind. I'd taken a training on it at some point. And I just forgot. I think I- it's on me to go get additional training. So he's like, yes. Uh, he's like, yes, you could guide me to the escalator. So we were talking. He takes a train every day. Um. But in this instance, when he gets off the train, he was saying sometimes he hits he gets off right at the escalator. Other times he doesn't and -hmm. he doesn't know where the escalator is. And so I've been fooling Mm -hmm. around and talking to some other folks. I'm like, how do we help visually impaired people navigate the city better? Because one day I will be old and one day I might also have vision problems or my mom or my loved one, somebody. How do we help people who are visually impaired navigate better? And this isn't some existential crisis, right? This is like, no, this is a real deal. They can't navigate to see to use public transportation because, you know, they're taxpayers too. So that's probably one of my biggest obsessions for uh, 2020, along with um, leapfrogging into obesity. And so leapfrogging into obesity is technology is making us all fatter. Uh, as a fat kid my whole life, I'm intimately uh, familiar with this. But your phone, you spend, your phone will tell you how much time you spend looking at it. Most Americans are like four and a half hours on your phone. You're obese. You're just obese. And so it's how do you, how are we going to leverage or manage the, and we're talking really about kids with the level of type 2 diabetes in our in our younger generations because they're addicted to their mobile devices because our technology is making our lives sedentary. And sedentary lives cause us to be obese and obesity has like 60 odd comorbidity factors to it. So how are we taking technology and not just letting it tell us that we're fat, that we're obese, but also empowering us, enabling us, to change our lifestyles, to be more active. Because the biggest challenge is your lifestyle is you don't exercise and the things that you eat were engineered in a lab and are just preserving you into obesity.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think, well, those are really two great um, you know things to be concerned with, I think. Especially blindness. I feel like with blindness, there are certain technologies being uh, developed that can actually help people that can't see finally see. So that's kind of cool to you know, keep in mind. Um, and in terms of the obesity thing and keeping moving, I think you're totally right. Technology has made us lazy as hell. And I think, for me, what helps me, I just recently got a like a smartwatch, a Garmin watch for Christmas. And every hour, it just tells me to move. It just vibrates and says move. So I just like tend to like follow it. Um, it's the little things, the little nudges. I think that could help. Um, Next question I have here. If it's not too personal, Samson, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake?
1: Oh, I one time quit a job and went to a startup that hadn't got funding. Don't ever do that shit. Okay. Um, It's like literally stupid. It it ultimately cost me like uh, probably 250K. Um, And so everybody wants to, at the top of the corporate ladder is entrepreneurship. Like, Because you don't climb back down the corporate ladder, you get kicked off. It's like, hey, Ray, congratulations, you're at the top of your corporate ladder, your career ladder, get off. And if you haven't packed your own parachute, the fall doesn't kill you, gravity does. And so for everybody who's like, hey, it's a new year, I'm going to go join the startup, we're going to go change the world, make sure they have a pathway to funding. Um, because otherwise, it's super stressful when it's like, oh, man, I got to pay my rent, my mortgage, my bills, my health insurance. How am I going to do this? And so that was probably one of the dumbest things I did. But as since I've been a serial entrepreneur since forever, I uh, started my first business when I was uh, 24. Now I'm old as dirt. Um, <laughs> it, it reminded me, I was like, why did I do that? I, it was a stupid moment because I knew better. Uh, and so, you when you do something stupid, it's because you know better. Otherwise, you're ignorant. And so, very rarely do we, particularly folks who are uh, in the healthcare space, because you know they tend to be careful planners. I tell people, drunk Samson has never gotten arrested, never in trouble. I might be asleep on someone's couch or outside of a hotel on the ground, but I'm cool. Sober Samson, I've got an Excel spreadsheet. I'm making calculated decisions that end up like, how did I just lose a quarter million dollars? I don't even, I thought about this for like three months and still lost all this money. And so number one thing, if you're thinking about starting your own venture or joining another venture, make sure they have proper funding. Um, and number two is not everyone is equipped to be an entrepreneur. It's There's nothing wrong with ha- being an entrepreneur, keeping your day job. And by keeping your day job, you're ensuring that you have your continuous paycheck come in every two weeks, every couple of weeks but also that you're pursuing your side hustle, pursuing your dreams. Um, Just keep that in mind. And what what helps you the most as an entrepreneur and as a human being is your failures. Mm. And I tell people, I fortunately started failing very early in life, probably right after I was born. And having gotten to become an expert at failing, even when I'm failing, it looks like everything is going smoothly because I just know how to manage that stress. Mm. If you start your own business, if you start your own startup, there's one. It's the easy. It's the fastest way to become emotion To live in an emotional desert, because when you're a founder or a solopreneur, oh, you can get super lonely and depressed. Two, when you look at entrepreneurship, you see the glitz and the glamour. You don't see what I call sucking up the glory, and that's just the stress of the financial and. In- in- Insecurity, unsec- uh, insecurity, and just having to make your own paycheck. And so, the dumbest thing I've ever done, and I've done a lot of dumb things, is leave uh, is leave a job to join a startup that hadn't secured funding. So, don't do that, folks.
0: Yeah, and I noticed on your LinkedIn uh, profile, the title was "The most important part of anyone's overnight success is the first ten years." I think that's a great line, um, and that applies here as well. Yeah, no, I've been doing this a while, and so I, it's a, in uh, particularly for
1: the young folks out there, the average age of an entrepreneur, our founder in Silicon Valley, is 43. That's um, perspective there, and so you, because you, when I was 20, I got I graduated from Florida State University at the age of 20, I was dumb as a box of rocks, I just didn't know it. Uh, and so it's like, man, you're so stupid in retrospect. You probably like, thought man, you
0: that, were a genius at that point, yeah, yeah like, oh, I'm t- you know,
1: I. Two years, uh, I spent one year and 360 days in undergrad, right? I crushed it, and I was out, and I was dumb as fuck. I just didn't know it. And so it's not until later, it's like, man, how were you ever that stupid? And so part of that is you're not beating up on yourself. You're just realizing uh, you're older, you're wiser. You've had some experiences that help you mature. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that, particularly for the young folks out there, it's difficult to be competitive when you've got to compete with me and Ray and people who've been doing it longer than you've been alive, because there's just some muscle memories that we have along with network and income that make you competing with us extremely difficult. And if you a seasoned person, you're going into entrepreneurship for the first time. It's different when you transition from being a subject matter expert in your industry for 30 years to being a, the buck starts and stops with you and you're responsible for everything. And, uh, my first company, I had uh, 38 employees that in 2008 I had to let them all go because of the recession, and that shit sucked um, because I was like, oh, man, I used to pay, make payroll for all these people so they can go home to their wives, their, fam- their family, et cetera. And so there's nothing as more stressful as entrepreneurship, but at the same time there's nothing more uh, elating or nothing more joyful as being an entrepreneur but don't confuse the two. The purpose is to generate income so that you can live the lifestyle you want to live, and so if you can do that best by having a job and being an entrepreneur, or doing it best by starting your own business and being an entrepreneur, you should do that. Do whichever one works best for you.
0: Was that um uh, where you had to lay off those people, was that during your time at Fannie Mae as well? Or?
1: Uh, no, this is a different company called ALB Environmental. Uh, we did indoor air quality testing. Uh, When I got, when I transitioned over to Fannie Mae, I was like the angel of death. Uh, We would let go of a thousand people at a time. Uh, And so, yeah, because again, we had to quote unquote right size the organization in order to do that. Um, At the time, uh, emergency management was housed in physical security. So we coordinated with uh, operations as long with HR, because, you know, we're going to let go of a percentage of the workforce today. And there's a method to that madness. Um, wow. Yeah. Just remember, if, I, I tell people, uh, beware of the hand that feeds you. It's probably been up to its elbow and some shit. And if you're at a corporation, they're, particularly when we talk about AI, part of this book I'm writing, AI Anger Management, we're not worried about your AI being mad at you. We're worried about your humans when you decide to automate 90% of a process because And most, uh, 78% of Americans live check to check, paycheck to paycheck. And so I don't have to automate your entire job, Ray. I just need to automate 10%. Because if I can reduce your hours from 40 hours to 35 to 34, if I can reduce your hours to 34 hours a week, now you're part-time. Now I don't have to give you health insurance. Mm -hmm. Now let's see how this cycle of poverty uh, plays out. And so when we talk about AI, and just layoffs in general. This is why I tell everyone be an entrepreneur, meaning your biggest client is your job, but you got a side hustle that brings in a little bit of income. Um because again, when you get to the top of your corporate ladder, you're going to discover entrepreneurship because you don't climb down the ladder, you get kicked off. Hmm.
0: What are your thoughts about the singularity that's supposed to happen in like 2045? You're talking about AI. Uh
1: I don't think, so part of it is... 25 years
0: away, so it's not...
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Humans are amazing creatures. Like, homo sapiens, sapiens were amazing. And so it took a few billion years for us to get here. And so, uh, as an anthropologist, we study physical anthropology and bones and and, um, Australia pithecins. And so when we look at the evolution of humans, it took a few billion years to get to here where... Ray has a three-pound supercomputer on his shoulder. He doesn't know how it's built. He doesn't know how to maintain it. He he sort of he can poke it with electrodes and it does stuff, but it's never really known. So it took a few billion years for us to get to being human as we know it now. And so, yes, humans do have the capacity to build transistors and networks and computers, but it's a bit of hubris to think that in the next 25 years, we're going to speed up evolution that fast. Because natural selection, for natural selection to play out, it took us a few billion years to get here as we exist today. So when we look at is a singularity going to happen, I'm going to say not in the next. I'm going to go all out, right, and say not in the next billion years.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. We'll see. In 25 <laughs> yeah. years, I'll uh, <laughs> look back at this clip and I'll just... You know you'll be right or wrong
1: <laughs> we will have some very awesome narrow ai that people will use to do very evil things to other human beings mm. but we're not gonna have how our jarvis from iron man running around uh, doing things for right. us because your brain is a lot more complicated than people want to think
0: uh, yeah i can i kind of agree there for sure um if you have to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted?
1: Do I have to have the What is the microchip for is my first question.
0: That's a good question. Let let's just say it's a small chip so you can make payments and go through like the subway and just identify yourself if you're at a hospital for example, just an identification chip. Um I'm maybe gonna have- with or without GPS you can choose. However,
1: Can I get this chip on a dog tag?
0: And wear it? um, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say if you had to put it somewhere embedded within your body.
1: So first off, if if you have to have a microchip implanted in your body, my first question is, how did we as a society agree that everyone should be tracked? That's my first question. My second statement is, if everyone has a microchip, cash is king. Because I do this even now uh, when I want to go out and about and do bad, malicious, funny shenanigans and not, it, not end up on Instagram. <laughs> uh, I collect all my friends' phones. We determine where we're going orally. We don't Google it. And then we uh, take public transportation or walk. And then we pay for everything in cash. It's literally like it never happened. And so if everyone has a microchip, I'm paying for everything in cash. Why? It's like, what were you doing there? It's like... I was just I was just by the building. I was just there. Yeah. Um it's so so you know, yeah. interesting.
0: I think yeah, a lot of people are, are like this. You know, they wanna make sure that they have a sense of privacy by not putting everything on a public or not even just public, but like even private credit card transactions is still on the record. The point is, in the future it's possible what you do today could be judged in a way that society has deemed as unethical or immoral or possibly illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are many things that were illegal and people were arrested for and now is completely legal. Uh, like cannabis, for example, you know, marijuana has, there are many states that have it recreationally legal. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was illegal. So, like, it's kind of weird that we are constantly being judged by our society. Will there be a day when we're not? We can do anything we want in some way and there'll be a there will be a you know a community for us that will accept us and we won't go to jail i don't know uh, it's hard to say because you definitely can't please everybody
1: so let, let's bring it back to recent events um mm-hmm. if you had to have a microchip implanted in your body where would you want it to be implanted so uh on friday uh uh, Soleimani, the gentleman from Iran, the general from Iran, yeah. and Soleimani, he's the equivalent of the director of the Central Intelligence Agency for Iran, right? So if he was in America, he'd be either the Secretary of State or the Director of Central Intelligence. He's a very high-ranking person. Mm-hmm. So they watched his plane. They surveilled his plane landing at the Iraqi International Airport using a. Uh, I think it's a. It's called a Reaper drone. It's like an MQ. MQ4 Reaper drone, they fired Hellfire missiles that blew up his convoy right outside of the airport. But they have to have the capacity to, to track him from Iran to Iraq so that a drone, and most of the drones are controlled, um, their operators are thousands of miles away. It's all remote. It's, a, yeah. it's all remote. And so if you have a microchip in you, Let me tell you how corporate espionage works then, Ray, and we're just talking about corporate espionage, not international geopolitical politics. So I think there's so many safety issues in addition to privacy in the sense of if I have a drone that hones in or recognizes your microchips Bluetooth, Mm -hmm. either one, I'm just going to follow you around even more, or two, I've decided, Ray, I don't like what your business is doing to my business. And so I think that when we talk about having a microchip and planet, we're really talking about a democracy as we know it has ended because you're really in an authoritarian regime because otherwise, why would this be a requirement so that you have to have this chip and planet? Because right now we have the capacity to surveil an individual person as we see with Soleimani to the point where we can neutralize or in their life remotely. And so, if we had to have a microchip implanted, I would much rather get a surrogate to carry around my microchip for me.
0: <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I love the different variations that this question is answered. So nice. It's um, a good thought process there. Who would you consider to be, you know, your favorite business or technology leader?
1: Oh, uh, it's hands inspires
0: down. you. Mm-hmm.
1: Hands down, uh, David Stern. Uh, He's the commissioner of the NBA. For all you heathens who don't know what the NBA is, it's the National Basketball Association. Shame on you for not knowing that. And so the reason that David Stern is, when he took the helm of the NBA in 1984, the NBA was garbage. Um, It was almost bankrupt. And so he turned that organization around. He turned the NBA. Right now the NBA has 30, 30 teams. Last year, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA World Championship. And it's important to know this because even if you don't follow sports, the NBA was an American franchise, an American enterprise. The Raptors were the first international team. And I say it's the first international team because by the end of the decade, you're going to have NBA teams not only in Mexico but also in China. And so when you look at where David, took the, David Stern took the NBA from, a defunct felling institution – to a global multi billion dollar uh, behemoth because uh, they embraced, he embraced Michael Jordan. He embraced the super tar- superstars. He's like, the superstars can make our league great. The superstars can elevate our brand, the NBA. And so in 1990, 91, 92, I'm sorry, in 91, 92, they'd had the dream team that they sent to Olympics because then it took the NBA brand global. And if you're a startup, if you're a business person, you're the NBA in 1984, no one knows who you are. You're probably a paycheck away from being insolvent. And so David Stern is an example of how you take a failing enterprise, the NBA, and over the next 30 years, you grow it from almost bankrupt to better ratings, more revenue, global positioning through the Olympics. Then the coup de grace was when they drafted Yao Ming from China, because he entered a market size 5x the US, and then he doubled down and said, hey, now that we've taken Basketball Global, we recruit, they have 118 uh, recruits from 39 different countries globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Giannis from Greece is their current superstar. He plays for the Bucks. Again, you don't need to know this, but you just need to understand that he took a failing industry. He took a, because NBA is an industry. He took a failing organization and industry and glued it into a global behemoth, and then he doubled down to say, "Now that we've gone global, now that we're in 38, we recruit from 38 countries around the world to bring these players into the U.S. market, into the North American market. Let's expand the depth of our revenue." And then he created the WNBA, because he and that's the Women's National Basketball Association, because he's like, "Hey, we already dominate globally for men." how do we diversify our revenue? He's like, we should do the same thing for women. And so if you're a business and you're like, hey, how do we be competitive? How do we be, one, you need to be thinking, how do we be competitive globally? How do we innovate? Sometimes it's, how are you recruiting people and reaching people outside of your local geographic area? Um, Cause I forget how you introduced me and I made it, I was like, oh yeah, I should make a note about global business. Like, we're a small company that does business globally. Everybody is a small company that does business globally if you're on the world wide web. And so David Stern did an amazing job of taking the NBA and making it into the behemoth that it is today. And that's a matter of leadership and also vision. And so if you don't have vision, you're never going to grow. You're never going to scale. Because if you can only see what your eyes allow you to, you're doomed. And so check out David Stern, wiki him, read a book about him. I think from a business perspective,
0: he crushed it. Nice. That's a that's a good answer. Uh, definitely a first <laughs> David Stern. Cool. I think a lot of my sports fans, listeners are going to like this one. Um, <laughs> what do you do in your free time, man? I mean, you got so much going on. Samson, how do you de-stress?
1: Uh, I listen to books on Audible so most of the time it's a sci-fi book then a real world book or a non-fiction book um, right now I'm rereading uh Mars Bound by David Haldeman which I think David Haldeman is a great book a uh, great um, writer I also play a lot of chess so if you go to chess.com find me Samson MW I'm always ready to play chess I do the 5 minute speed games so it's Samson S-A-M-S-O-N MW on chess.com I talk shit to you while we play chess. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I love doing that. Um, I I used to run marathons. I'm actually going to get back into that because, you know, we got to fight obesity. You got to do my part to fight obesity. Um, and I'm also reading narrative economics by Robert Schiller. And I'm going to give him a shout out because narrative economics is a dope book. And next up is AI superpowers by K-Fu Lee on my book to read. So Yeah. Uh, if it's if I happen to be somewhere where it's snowing oh it's a Netflix day
0: so <laughs> what would you say uh, is your your favorite book you know it seems like you're you know a heavy reader
1: Uh, favorite book oh man it's so hard it would be easier if we'd like writers um, or favorite writer if you have a favorite, uh, favorite book there's a book called Calculating God <sighs> hmm. it's, a, it's such a great book Um, there's a book series are you familiar with um Halo Master Chief, uh, Microsoft video game.
0: The game, yeah. Yeah,
1: So there's a game called Halo, which comes out by Microsoft. Mm -hmm. There's also books that are written about the game. I've never played Mm. the game once, not even a second of it. I've read all, like, 21 books. And so the first book is called Fall of Reach. Uh, Halo, Fall of Reach, and it puts you into the Halo universe. And it introduces you to a different uh, vocabulary, so that I don't have to, when we talk about AI, and I say, oh, you describe an AI that builds other AIs. I'm like, oh, you want an ancillary. So they come up with whole, they, the folks from Microsoft have already come up with vocabulary words to describe the future. I assume That's the awesome. writers go talk to the engineers and say, if I want something that, uh, the, if it's an AI that builds other AIs, what do we call it? And they say, oh, that's called an arc-level ancillary. And I'm like, brilliant. And so I'm not even joking when I say that. The writers talk to the engineers and say, what are you guys building that's not commercialized yet for the next 10 years? They're like, oh, yeah, you can use this Cortana character from Halo Master Chief. That's what Microsoft calls its AI. And so this is where life is interpreting art. So the Halo books are amazing because they introduce vocabulary for concepts that we want to talk about in the future that aren't yet there. Um, and then uh, B.V. Larson, he's an author. He writes a, a series of Undying Mercenaries, which is just great in its entirety. Uh, what yeah. is, yeah, I'm going to stop there.
0: <laughs> appreciate it. Um, no, that's really a great list, I think. Uh, I can also include, I'll put all these notes in the show notes so people can look mm-hmm. at it in visual form as well.
1: Oh, and anything by Lewis Lemour, He's a Western writer, has nothing to do with sci-fi, but Lewis Lemoore is just the truth.
0: Got it. Very cool. So, you know, just wrapping up here. First of all, thank you for joining. This has been a really informative, engaging conversation. I think the audience is really going to like it. Do you have any final takeaways or something you want to share with the audience? Also, I want to make sure our audience, I want to read your book when it's out, AI Anger Management. Uh, So look forward to that.
1: Yeah. uh, Final thoughts. I think you said it best. the, uh, The most important part of anyone's overnight success is the first 10 years. It's it's hard to explain that to people because uh, my my nephew, uh, a few years ago, he told me I intimidated him. He, at the time, he was like 13. Because, uh, you know, I travel the world. I, I, try, I always try to take him with me. Or I send him a gift or something. And I'm like, Adelaide, I've known you the longest. I love you the most. When you see me, you see, you see me like Usain Bolt. You only see the last 10 seconds, mm-hmm. right? Because when you see Usain Bolt run, he's a Jamaican sprinter. He's the fastest man in the world you only get to see you don't even get to see a full 10 seconds you get like nine point something right you don't see the 30 years it took to get to that 10 seconds and so for my nephew he never he he just sees me he's like oh my uncle's going to wherever uh bangkok or or um cambodia or uh saudi arabia and so for him i want him to think that that's normal number one that yes you should go travel and see the world and so he hasn't ever witnessed the sucking up, the glory, the slog it took to get to this point where I had a the confidence enough to go out, open my mouth, and speak my expertise. So if you're in this, if you're in this space, and you feel like you haven't quite yet made it, the hardest part of anyone's overnight success is the first ten years. I think Lizzo, she's a rapper, a uh, singer, flautist. Um, she was saying in 2009, her dad died, and she cried herself to sleep in, in her car alone on Thanksgiving. In 2019, she made the cover of Time Magazine as Entertainer of the Year. And so don't give up on yourself. It's that 10-year slog. There are no no shortcuts. It's a marathon. There are no shortcuts to, to just being not even great, but just comfortable with yourself and growing into your skin because you think, hey, I'm 25, I'm 30 years old, I'm 40 years old. It actually takes a while for you to get comfortable with your skin. And after you get comfortable with your skin, everything else is like water off a duck's back. 99% of shit, you just don't care about it anymore. You're like, that no longer even registers as an anxiety point or something I should even be concerned about because you know it's not worth the wrinkle. <laughs> and so once you learn, hey, The secret to overnight success is the first 10 years, the next epiphany is whatever whatever BS you're about to approach me with, not worth the wrinkle. Move on with life. So that's it.
0: That's amazing. Samson, don't be a stranger, man. If you're ever up in Boston, let me know. We can go play some chess or grab a drink and pay in cash and, you know, we'll (laughs) we'll figure it out. Um, Awesome, Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Ray. Thank you. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.